Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Join our campaign for clear pension charges. FT Money has been exploring the impossibility of comparing the costs of drawdown plans. Today, we're calling on the pensions and advice industry to be transparent about charges to help you shop around. The spread of the coronavirus has given world stock markets a nasty turn. FT Money's new investment reporter joins me to discuss how investors are reacting. And finally, to cheer us all up a bit, James Max, our Rich People's Problems columnist, is here to discuss a burning issue, the government's proposed ban on coal fires. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money editor, bringing you all of this week's news. Now, imagine for a minute that you have a million pounds in your pension fund. Nice. Now, like hundreds of thousands of British retirees, you decide that you want to go into drawdown. That's shorthand for keeping your pension invested in the stock market while you draw down an income from it. So which provider should you choose? Like anything in life, comparing the costs of different services is going to be a major factor in your decision. But in the pensions world, this is very difficult to do. Drawdown providers apply different charges in a multitude of different ways, and some advisory firms do not even display fee information on their websites. Yet, according to a groundbreaking analysis of the UK's drawdown market, on a million pound pension pot, the difference between the cheapest provider and the most expensive could be nearly half a million pounds over a 25-year investment horizon. To which you might say, well, no wonder they don't want us to know the charges. FT Money believes the UK's millions of retirement savers deserve better. So last weekend, we launched our campaign for clear pension charges, calling on investment platforms and advisory firms to provide greater transparency for consumers. I'm joined in the FT studio by Josephine Cumbo, our award-winning pensions correspondent, who has been ably assisted by research conducted by Holly Mackay, the founder of consumer website Boring Money, who says... She got through several calculators and numerous gin and tonics whilst crunching all the numbers. Well, welcome both. Starting with you, Joe. this campaign has three fairly clear aims. What are they? Yes, Claire, 
Currently, pension investors face a near impossible task to compare all the options open to them for investing their retirement cash due to opaque and complex charging structures. And basically, we think weak rules around disclosure. So our campaign has three very simple aims, which we believe will help investors make more informed decisions. Hit me. Firstly, every advice firm and platform should publish details of all their fees online and make these easy to find with a prominent homepage link. Tick. Secondly, all firms should have a calculator on their website which provides an indicative amount of charges for any prospective customer to personalise their cost. Now, this is really important so you can sort of work out how you'll be affected by the charges on the website. And thirdly, companies should make it easier for consumers to compare charges and shop around. So there are three very simple aims for making it much easier for you to make sure you know how much value you're getting from your money. Well, tick and tick, it doesn't sound like a big ask. So why aren't drawdown providers already doing these three things? Well, some are, Claire, but there is a huge variation in the market at the moment about how fees are disclosed and what is disclosed. I mean, compare when you compare going online to look around for a pension, looking at your charges with shopping uh, for a mortgage, which is another very, very big financial decision, it's, mm. it's much, much harder and confusing to do that with drawdown. And we don't think that this should be the, the case. That's why we've launched this campaign. So it's extremely difficult to compare deals for drawdown and for also to compare advisors. Now, the FCA has rules in place to ensure firms managing your investments must be clear about their fees. But the difficulty of compiling the data that we found for our analysis suggests that these rules do not go far enough. Now, in general, the DIY platforms that we looked at were more upfront about putting their charges online than financial advisors, but not all of them made it easy to find this information. So you might spend minutes or even beyond that searching around the website, trying to find the link to the charges, which makes it a very frustrating experience. And like you say, when you found the charges, then the next struggle is applying all of those percentages and oddly named um, fee structures to your own situation. Absolutely. During the analysis, it became apparent that some firms were much better than others at helping consumers to understand the impact of those charges and what they were getting for their money. Only one of the 10 firms that we looked at provided our prospective customers with an easy-to-use online calculator, which would allow them to personalise their fees. Now, we reckon all of those firms should be doing that to make it easy for their customers. Now, comparing advice uh, firms was more of a challenge as some firms didn't even put their fees online. There were two firms in our analysis that didn't even do that. So as the rules stand, there is no requirement, believe it or not, on firms to publish their fees. But we found that the two hadn't done that. And it was very, very difficult for for, um, the analysis, for our researchers who are conducting the analysis to try and get to the bottom of charges because those fees weren't even on the website. Now, those two firms and others like them would argue that, well, we want to have a face-to-face meeting with customers where we can uh, present the the sheet of charges at the end, you know, after we've given them the sales pitch, of course. But the analysis will horrify FT subscribers with large pension pots. I mean, that half a million pound difference between the cheapest and the most expensive over 25 years is a really shocking figure. Well, it is shocking because over a period of retirement, it's very important if you don't want to run out of money before or you anticipate to or work longer than expected, that your investments work for you. But there is a culture in some areas of the financial planning industry 
that fees should not be made public on websites, as this encourages customers to focus on price and not on value. Now, we do not think that this is right. It's against the grain of transparency where financial services have moved to. And you can you can look on a website for other uh, other products such as mortgages, ICES, etc. And you know what you're getting. And then you can make a, an initial assessment about whether you want to, to go to the next step. So we don't think that it's right that advisors should hide behind that excuse that it encourages people to focus on price and, and not on value because you need to have the, the fees in front of you in order to make that first assessment. Now, at which point I'm going to bring in Holly Mackay. Holly, thank you so much, A, for doing the research and B, <laughs> joining us today. Now, you attempted to call this the gin index oh, yes, because it was just so hard to find it, charging information online. It drove me to drink, Claire, honestly. Um I mean, it is crazy, right, in 2020 that it is so opaque still and and you'd think it would be a relatively simple exercise. Now, it depends where you're looking. If you're a Mm. DIY investor and you're researching some of the bigger names out there, all the information is available um, online, on websites. It takes a bit of digging through, but you can do it. If, on the other hand, you want to go and see an advisor at some of the largest brands in the UK out there, it is fundamentally, I would say, actually impossible to do a broad brush comparison of what you might expect to pay at these sites. So, I mean, that's why I called it the gin index. So, you know, it's like the units on the gin index. How many gins did I need to drink after attempting to fathom this for particular providers? Now, Incredibly, the way that the regulator has written the rules, advisory firms don't have to disclose their costs and charges online. Um, they can say that investors have to come to a face-to-face meeting or phone them up, which is, in your case, what you did to get the information out of them. But why do you think that that rule has to change? I, I just think it's totally anachronistic. And as you say, when I set out to do this exercise, I could only complete it because I knew from working in this industry for 20 years, I had the personal contact. So I could actually phone them up and say, look, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. What what would someone have to pay? So, you know, we hear a lot of arguments about the value of advice. And and I know whenever topics like this come up, there will be uh, the sages of the industry who sigh And they will say, yes, Holly, a fool knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. But I say, actually, I'm not even then a fool because I don't know the price of anything. It's not publicly disclosed. It's not available on websites. Let's have the conversation about value, sure. But I can't do that till I actually know the price. That is a fundamental component part of value. So it should be clearly Uh, articulated on everyone's website, clear to see these are the charges you are likely to incur if you come and engage with our firm. And the best practice that you found was actually quite a simple tool that an investor could use to work out how much the charges would apply to their own personal circumstances. Well, that's right. And again, like you say, I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? So Schroeder's Personal Wealth has something on on their homepage. You can put in the the amount of money and it will give you an indicator of what you might pay and it will break it down if you want to see into the charges for advice, the underlying investments, etc. Bruin Dolphin, another group, uh, a bit harder to find out, but you know, you can navigate to a charges. uh, It's a PDF, but an illustration of what you might expect to pay. 
day. So to my mind, it is it is crazy that that is not broadly adopted across the industry as best practice. Now, lots of firms will say, ah, Holly, but you know, these are discretionary run portfolios for the larger customers. Uh, it depends on what service they're getting. Sure, but you know, give make some assumptions, give people a ballpark figure, give people an indicator. You can get into the actual nuances when they come and see you. But that absolute lack of transparency and that lack of information just strikes me as absolutely obscene. Now, let's get to the nitty gritty of your research. Now, you looked at the charges measured as a percentage of a million pound pension pot. We picked a million pounds because that's the figure of the lifetime allowance. And let's face it, the figure that we're all aspiring (laughs) to shove away in our pension. So measured as a percentage of a million pound pot, how did the DIY platforms compare? So if you go to a DIY platform, and of course it differs on on who you go and see, but the the lowest fee you could pay would be about half a percent a year. Now, that would include um, a very low cost passive or a sort of ETF um, investment in that. If you're choosing a blend of active funds um, and you're being slightly more adventurous with your drawdown and how often you take income payments and you're being a bit more complicated, you could pay up to about one point. 0.25% a year. Okay, so sticking with the percentages, it was harder to work out the charges these way on the advised services because, as you say, more is included. But how did they compare roughly to the DIY costs? Well, and I will say, Claire, I mean, it's like the wizard of flipping odds, I mean, because you're <laughs> trying to get behind that smoke screen. But after um, lots of gin and, and about 30 hours, um, the crazy thing is when you, you dig behind the scenes, the charges are broadly very similar. So they're roughly between about two and two and a half percent a year for an ongoing advised uh, drawdown service. So that's roughly, I guess, sort of twice the, the cost of, of DIY or execution only. Now, as you explained in the article, investors who take the advisory, they'll be paying for investment advice as well as platform charges and, and fund management fees. And some of them are better than others um, at breaking that down. And some of them will charge different amounts up front. Some of them will charge over the life of, of the portfolio. The article has got much more details about all of those things. But finally, those percentages may sound small, but you also modelled the theoretical impact that those charges could have on a million pounds investment over 25 years, assuming that no withdrawals were made. So how would that affect? I mean, yeah, the the, the bottom line is, is about half a million pounds worth of difference. So if you're using a DIY, the cheapest option we found was £346,000 in charges across that 25-year lifespan. Um, £815,000 was the most expensive advised options. Now, I can hear some people that work for the advice industry sort of shouting at at the kettle sort of in the background as they're listening to this. Um, We're not comparing like with like, and I'm not here to bash the value of advice. I've seen good advice save people from disastrous tax mistakes, um, from lack of diversification, from from all of those things. So, you know, for many people, good advice is invaluable and will be worth it. The point, I guess, that I'm observing is when it's that much money involved, when there's half a million quid's worth of difference in charges, we have to understand the value of the advice that we're being offered so we can make 
the decision and we can't get to understanding that value if we can't find out loud and clear and in the public domain what we have to pay for these services. Now, Holly, I'm going to cheekily ask you one last question before um, we hand over to Joe Cumbo. What do you think the regulators should do in response to the FT's campaign? I I would hope the industry would get to this before the regulator mandates it, but I think everybody needs to have a pricing calculator on their homepage, clearly accessible, where anyone can enter um, the amount of money that they're looking, potentially looking for advice on, and at least get an illustration with some assumptions built into it of the total amount of money that they would pay. Surely that's not asking too much. Now I'm going to bring Joe Cumbo in again. Joe, what kind of response have we seen from FT Money readers to the campaign? Well, we've had literally around more than 100 responses. There was a lot of discussion over the weekend, comments on the story, on LinkedIn, on Twitter and on Facebook accounts. And it's generated quite a heated discussion too, as you might imagine, um, from advisors mm. who do have different views about whether fees should be disclosed. We had some high-profile support for the campaign from a former pension minister, a former member of the FCA board, etc., who believes, yes, there should be transparency in their supporting our aims. But we also had some more high-profile support from the non-exec chair of the Tesco Pension Fund. Now, Tesco is one of the biggest pension funds uh, in this mm. country, in the private sector, who says... Um, his name is Rustin, Rustin Smith. I fully support this campaign. Savers need to know what they are buying and what they are paying for a basic obligation to customers. Other readers made comments on the bottom of the story online saying a lack of clarity around transaction costs and other hidden fees means that even when charges are reported that they're largely meaningless. There were some angry comments too. People were very fed up with how long it's taking the industry to really get to grips with being more transparent. One reader said, how long has the campaign for clear non-opaque easily comparable charges gone on for? Years and still zero has happened. So there is definitely a push from readers and from investors for us to do a bit more to push push regulators to go a bit further. But we've also had some comments from advisors too who are who understand that what we're trying to achieve, but they're also very concerned about investors focusing on on price rather than value. Just to give you an example, one one advisor said, I think focusing on charges can be detrimental, though it is the only thing the client is, if it is the only thing the client is focusing on. Focusing on value for money is better. And as long as you're up front with everything, then that's great for the client and for you. Brilliant, Joe. Well, I have to say, judging by the tenor of comments from FT Money readers, the fact that firms appear to be hiding the charges is only contributing to the feeling from large numbers of our readerships that they could be being ripped off. Now, if you would like to show support for FT Money's Clear Pension Charges campaign, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email, money at ft.com, or tweet us at ftmoney, or simply use the hashtag Clear Pension Charges with no spaces to share your views and look up to see how other readers and industry professionals have reacted to the piece. The full article by Joe Cumbo comparing likely drawdown charges offered by 10 different platforms and advisory firms is on our website now, ft.com slash money. And this includes Boring Money's analysis and Holly Mackay's column about how she crunched the numbers and what providers had to say in response to her research. Some, as you might expect, fairly disgruntled. Sadly, people who are in drawdown and investors of all sizes around the world have been hit by coronavirus-related volatility on stock markets in the last few weeks. 
Last week, markets endured their worst performance since the financial crisis in 2008. But private investors have been reacting with a mixture of fear and, should I say, opportunistic trepidation. Joining me now is Madison Derbyshire, FT Money's investment reporter. Welcome to The Money Show, Madison. Thanks, Claire. And I should say welcome to FT Money. (laughs) We're very glad to have you on our crack reporting team. But last week, terrible one for investors everywhere. But how have private investors in the UK been reacting to the crisis? Well, data from investment platforms at the last week showed that they were reporting some of their busiest ever trading days, which suggests that investors were bold enough to look at buying the dip. Um, Some of the interesting trends that we saw were investors looking to buy the whole market. So they were buying into ETFs and particularly the FTSE 100. Trading volumes have been high. Obviously, a lot of people have been selling, but trading platforms are showing that there's also been a lot of buying. Interesting data I got in this morning shows that even though investors are more likely to be buying, the amounts that they're buying into are much lower than the amounts that are going into sales. So overall, lots of people are, are, are panicking, maybe selling, mm-hmm. um, t- taking a larger cash position. But some investors who've maybe built up big cash positions, if you, as you've been reporting mm-hmm. in FT Money, have been tempted um, to deploy some of that capital. Now, the ones who have been bold enough to buy into this dip, mm-hmm. what have they been buying? So we've seen investors trading in some of the more speculative investments trying to buy into the virus as well as into old safe havens like gold. Um, ETFs invested in gold were popular purchases last week, but the top investment was actually Novasite, a company that produces a test for coronavirus, which was up over 900% from the start of the year. Other popular investments were travel companies like EasyJet, which has fallen 25% since the start of the year, and Carnival Cruises was also among the top trades for the week. Mm, interesting, because for the travel industry, as we reported also in FT Money at the weekend, lots of people are looking at their holidays coming up and thinking, should we cancel? Um, should we buy better travel insurance? It's you know something that's having an effect on that area of the economy perhaps first before other areas are affected. So though we've seen a quick correction to the record bull run in the market for the last few years, the market is actually still relatively strong compared to the lows that we saw around the financial crisis. Um, Investors don't really know yet how bad to expect things to get or how disrupted supply chains will be. Um, Still, we've seen like a little rise in investor confidence. It's lifted the market this week. The S&P 500 is up and the FTSE 100 is also up from the start of this week. But experts say that what we are seeing might actually be just like a dead cat bounce. I love that phrase. (laughs) Me too. And for those that don't know, dead cat bounce is uh, the expression to explain what might be a temporary recovery, that even a dead cat will bounce if dropped from far enough and fast enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously, the big move that's happened um, in the last 24 hours um, as we sit in London recording this podcast is that the central banks have started to react. Now, in America, when the Fed cut rates by half a percent, that seemed to spook investors. But then in the UK and Europe, largely speaking, markets seem to be on an upward trend again as we sit here. Yeah, stock prices have kind of seen a recovery after it was confirmed that bank governors have potentially been coordinating stimulus measures around the world. Um, There seems to be some confidence that the governments are springing into action, but we did see that after the U.S. central bank cut its main policy rate by half a percentage point 
U.S. Treasury yields fell below 1% for the first time. The U.K. and Canada are expected to follow with similar easing measures. So lots for investors to think about, not just what's happened on markets, but what could happen in the weeks and months to come as governments around the world battle to contain this virus. But very much the message from investment experts that you speak to is think twice before making any big panic decisions about your long-term investments. Yeah, I think there's a lot of concern that people are acting rashly or they are looking to sell in a moment of panic about the markets. But a lot of advisors suggest that people should not make bold decisions with their cash right now. We don't know how things are going to turn out. Um, We can see from the platform data that a lot of UK investors and pension savers have historically high levels of cash. But the question remains how much of it they're going to be willing to deploy and whether they should. Well, Madison, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. There'll be more about the coronavirus news as it happens on FT.com. So do keep an eye on that. And we will be back next week to talk more about what markets have been doing. And finally, in an attempt to cheer us all up amid the market gloom, we have rolled out the red carpet and invited Rich People's Problems columnist James Max into the FT studio to opine on his latest issue, the government's impending ban on coal fires. Well, welcome, James. Thank you very much. So why is coal such a burning issue? It's a burning issue because it adds to a long list of things that are increasingly being banned. So I understand that there is, for some people, a climate crisis. There is, for other people, a need to act and to do things and to do things now. And I understand all of these things. But... But what I don't understand is when we're asked to do stuff that is actually the equivalent to self-harming. And, for example, a few coal fires up and down the country burning in in a nice rural village or something else is not going to stop the planet warming if that's what's causing the warming. It really isn't. And, And yet here is a business that we have a few coal pits left in the UK, not many. If, for example, you said to me, right, OK, we're going to stop the big, massive, you know, great big burning furnaces. OK, fair enough. I get it. But a few coal fires up and down the country. That's the next step. Let's do some other things first. And I love a coal fire. It's a beautiful thing. And you also resent other things that have been banned yes. um, within your house, such as? Well, I love the incandescent light bulb. I, it's <laughs> a beautiful thing. Again, I don't particularly like a pearl one. They're a little bit common. But I do like a see-through glass where you can see the filament. And they are a lovely um, a lovely item. They throw off a fantastic, beautiful, readable, warm, friendly light. And I'm well aware that technology is adjusted and LEDs can do all sorts of things. And I've had LEDs. And in certain places and at certain times, they are fine and they are great. But to ban this thing that made absolutely no difference to anyone, a poor incandescent light bulb. They're lovely. Well, as you go on to say in your column, the woke police, uh, to quote you, have got a dim view of steaks and coffee cups and may even be coming for your arga next, you fear. Well, there are lots of things they're going to come after. I mean, uh, we've now heard that they're going to come after certain kinds of petrol. So they want to put more ethanol in petrol, which, by the way, if you've got a classic car, your classic car is not going to be happy because it doesn't burn this kind of fuel. So we've got all sorts of measures being put in. Oh, it's going to clean the environment. No, it's going to ruin everything that we got already at the moment. What the hell is wrong with you people? Well, we're laughing, but climate change is a serious issue and one that concerns lots and lots of our Yes, it is. And the younger you are, the more you've been fed with all this stuff that, oh my God, everything's dying, the planet's dying, everything. Terrible. And, And the thing is, 
here's the point I'm really cross about. It's not that people want to act on climate. I get it. I understand. We've also got a lot more people and we have to be more considerate about how we use our precious resource. All of that stuff is fine. It's the unintended consequence of stupidity and wrong-headed actions that are there to placate people, to look as if we're doing something when, in fact, we're making it just as bad or just as just as wasteful, just in a different way. Give us an example. So say, for example, if you've got a whole load of cars that have already been made, chances are the biggest impact upon the environment was actually making that car rather than how you fuel it, particularly if people use that car sparingly. So what you really want to do is to get people to use things for longer. I know it doesn't necessarily translate into economic growth, but use things for longer and then try and reduce their use and make them redundant as opposed to getting everybody to go and get new ones. In your column, you also took issue with some other seen-to-be-green tactics used by wealthy friends of yours, namely when it comes to flying. Yes, yeah, so of course. So on one hand, you'll go around to the houses and you can't move for recycling bins and all this sort of stuff and they won't eat this kind of food or there's something else is being provided or I don't know, they've got hemp curtains or I don't know, whatever they're doing. <laughs> and, and then it's like, oh, where are you going on holiday? Oh, we're going to Mauritius, darling. I'm sorry, what? We're going to Mauritius. Yes, and that's after our skiing holiday. And all of these things, they've done more damage by going on holiday and doing their multiple trips. And they're, oh, yes, we're just having a quick pop to New York for the weekend. And the la, 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 la. I mean, coronavirus is probably doing more for saving the planet and the environment than anything else at the moment. It's stopping people, you know, unnecessarily travelling. And maybe it's this hypocrisy that I can't deal with. It's this, oh, you know, it's like the individuals who went off to some green summit somewhere to tell us how to live our lives and yet off they went on their private jet oh but we offset the carbon no this is terrible i have to say a lot of our readers agree with you in the comments (laughs) which is but lots of them don't (laughs) can you read us out a few of your favorites because they are always so funny well there always are um so this one was um uh, this one was relatively nice. So we'll start with a nice one because usually I, I'd start. So yes, yes, yes. The utter hypocrisy of much public discourse on environmental issues and so-called role models elegantly exposed, says um, MB1. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and this one, uh, which is also uh, a pleasant one so from Cities Liquor, says, I always enjoy the articles, then pop back to enjoy the comments, particularly from commentators who don't get it. Mornington Crescent for the FT. Oh, Mornington Crescent. I like that. Surely there were some who uh, were slightly slightly ruder about your cruise. Of course there were. Bert says, James Max is a self-regarding pompous twit with a sense of entitlement and is genuinely very pleased with himself. And you replied? I replied, you might want to put a full stop on the end of that. <laughs> well, I think the readers really like how you you give as good as you get in your in your comment stream. 150 comments on that on that article now, but I have to say, James, my favourite was this one from Swift Zeus. He said, "I think some of the commenters take this article a little too seriously. It is, after all, under the rich people's problems section. So anybody expecting anything other than entitlement mixed with humour is evidently missing the point." Well, I think that's probably probably the right thing. Meanwhile, we'll end up on a, a, maybe another negative on the basis that uh, Lamarquis Zorro has said, who is this guy? I've been subscribing to the FT for a number of years and never heard of him. All read his column until now. Surely this is the wrong media for him. We won't say where he suggests that perhaps we go. Uh, but I uh, did respond that maybe um, if they were slow, then maybe they might enjoy that newspaper a little bit more themselves. 
<laughs> well, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much to James Max, our Rich People's Problems columnist. You can read all of his rants on our website now, ft.com slash money. And if you have a problem that you would like James to look into, you can contact him over email. His address, richpeoplesproblems at ft.com. And to James's chagrin, there is no apostrophe in that email address. That's it for The Money Show this week. We'll be back next Friday, a day later than usual, so we can give you the full lowdown on what happens at new Chancellor Rishi Sunak's first UK budget. The FT Money podcast was presented by me, Claire Barrett, and produced in London by Lucy Warwick-Ching. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.